You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to uh, return to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Luke 18, verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your holy and sacred word. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us in this hour, that as we turn to your word and as we discuss the doctrine of baptism, that, Father, you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us, you would guide us, you would lead us, you would encourage us. Give to each of us, O oh Father, that which we require at this moment. O oh Father, it's under your Lordship that we sit and we submit. In your precious name, amen and amen. Well, we take a break this morning from our study of Genesis. For the benefit of those who are visiting with us, uh, we've been systematically studying Genesis. And uh, we take a break this morning in lieu of uh, uh, baptism of Linus. thought it might be wise to uh, speak to the subject of baptism this morning. And I was looking through my notes. I, I, I just happened to look through uh, one of the files on my computer this morning and noticed that there was an outline for what, we, what I call covenantal baptism. And it was, um, the file was created in 2016. So I think that's the last time that I spoke on baptism, which really should speak on it a little more often than that. You'll have to get after me about that. Um, but uh, as you start teaching through these books, you lose track of time. Last week's message in Genesis, I believe, was the 58th message in Genesis. So, you know, you get, you get started in these, uh, these, you know, going through the books verse by verse, taking verses and chapters at a time. Next thing you know, you look up and the calendar's uh, been changed quite a bit since when you started. So uh, this morning we take a look at baptism. And when you start talking about the subject of baptism, oh my, I mean, it, it can be controversial, can it? Uh, you know, you can, you can find yourself sometimes in shark-infested waters, actually, when you talk about baptism. And yeah, I see some, fa- I thought that would have <laughs> some facial expressions. But I, you know, I can recall being in seminary, and I went to, semin- I went to a Presbyterian seminary, but there were a lot of um, uh, folks in the seminary that you know, would would definitely refer to themselves as Reformed Baptists. And I'm so thankful for them. I never really got to know uh, many of them very, very well, but we'd have a class here and a class there together. And sometimes we'd have discussions about baptism. And of course, their view on baptism was different from uh, from my own and from that of the school that I studied at. But what I really appreciated so very much about those discussions is that there was a, enough spiritual maturity there that we were able to have these discussions and like they never resorted to name calling, they never resorted to, you know, picking up your toys and going to another corner in the sandbox, you know. We were able to discuss this stuff and learn so much from each other because 
of our mutual love for each other and also for our, um, uh, the fact that, you know, we're seeing things differently, uh, and that's okay. And the professors that we sat under certainly were teaching and arguing for covenantal baptism, which is the, bap- the, the view that I'm going to present this morning. And our, our Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters uh, still highly respected these instructors. Obviously, they matriculated into that school uh, because it was such a, it's such a Christ-centered school. Uh, there's going to be difference among us and, uh, on this side of glory. That's all there is to it. Uh, what I'm trying to say is this. When I approach baptism with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, I try to do so from a humble position. And I try to do so really from a winsome position. Um, that, that's where I'm coming from this morning. Uh, there's really in our area, at least it's been my experience, that there really are, broadly speaking, only really two views uh, on baptism that you're probably likely to encounter here. There are more views on baptism than that. But in our neck of the woods, you typically hear either a Roman Catholic view or what we might call a Baptist view. Those are really the two views that, uh, that you hear most of the time. Now, let me just get the Catholic view right out of the way. Uh, it pains me to say this, but it has to be said. Um, the, the Roman Catholic view has been, has been rejected uniformly by Protestants. Now, what did I just say? I just said that view has been rejected uniformly by Protestants. In the word Protestant, you'll hear the word protest. And we've really forgotten what a lot of these protests were about. One of the things that the protests were about was the doctrine, the Roman Catholic doctrine of baptism. And I'll give you, some some of you are very familiar with it. I have... I can give you one definition. This pretty much sums up the Catholic catechism when it says that baptism is a means of spiritual and initial justification and sanctification through the infusion of grace received in it. Okay, some of you know exactly what I just said, and your facial expressions are giving you up right now. I can tell you know exactly what I said. Some of us are sitting there, um, you know, like maybe Madison's sitting there like, oh, what did he just say? I don't know. Um, but it's going to be hot today, and I want to be in the pool. Um, what did I just say? I'm using all of this theological jargon. Well, baptism, according to this view, is a means of spiritual and initial justification. Okay, what do we mean by justification? Justification concerns the issue of how can sinners, covenant breakers, criminals like ourselves, If you've ever sinned against God, even once, in thought, word, or deed, then you have committed a crime against the holy and just God. And how can we stand in his court? Now, justification speaks to that issue. How are we going to stand in his court? Now, the answer that the gospel gives, the answer that the apostle Paul gives, both in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3, is that it is through faith and through faith alone that we can stand in God's court. And he appeals to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he says, Abraham believed God and it was what? Everyone. Exactly. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, the problem with this view is it says that baptism is a means of spiritual and initial 
justification and in sanctification through the infusion of grace. What that teaches is that as the priest applies the water to the candidate, that upon that application, grace in that moment in time is being infused into the heart of the candidate. And this grace is a means of initial justification. Now, we have to reject that because it's another gospel. That's a whole other gospel than what is proclaimed in the New Testament. And a lot of Protestants don't know that because this is controversial. Pulpits cannot be afraid to say this stuff. We've got to say this stuff. Sometimes we're perceived as not being very nice when we say things like this. Well, I, I, I submit to you that it's not very nice not to say this because this is, this is soul-damning stuff is what it is. Um, it's Furthermore, it says that baptism communicates saving grace, and that is, that, that is indicative of what you'll sometimes hear about uh, uh, baptismal regeneration, if you've ever heard that phrase before. Uh, what that means is the candidate is being regenerated upon uh, baptism. You know, we're going to ask Cody and Laura, don't come up front just yet, but we're going to ask you to come up front here in a little bit and present Linus. And I want to make it really clear as we benefit Linus, as we baptize Linus, that what we're not teaching is that Linus is becoming regenerate in the moment that we baptize him. That is not what we believe. Uh, not, not even by a long shot. Now, that having been said, it is possible that Linus is regenerate. Everybody okay with that? As I've read statements where people have come out and said an infant cannot be regenerate. And I think to myself, how dare you say that? Because we have, a, we, we have, a, we have it in the gospel where the Apostle John, while he was in the womb of his mom, it comes upon Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, walks in the room, and what does John, what does the infant John do? And there's so many people in the church, so many people in the church. Sometimes they're troubled by this. They're like, you know, people talk about their testimony, like they walked in darkness, and all of a sudden they see the light. They've got this wonderful testimony, but I don't have one of those testimonies because, you know, I've been like, I've been like, I just can't ever put my finger on a day when I didn't know Jesus and I didn't love Jesus. You know what I say to folks when they say that to me? You're blessed because you weren't suffered to walk in darkness for all these years and commit all those additional sins of unbelief. You're blessed. And that is exactly, this is what we pray for, for our youngsters. My prayer constantly for our youngsters is that they will never know a day, that they'll never know a day when they didn't know the Lord and they didn't love the Lord. That's my prayer for Linus. So we must reject this view. The, 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 the second view that you're going to hear most of the time around here among Protestants is a view that goes like this. This is a quotation from the Southern Baptist Church, and it goes this way. It says, Christian baptism is, quote, an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. End of quote. Now, you don't have that quote in front of you, and it's hard to follow that much, isn't it? Uh, one sentence, uh, two sentences, but I suspect that many of us recognize that because I know that that was a view that many of you once held. 
And it's also a view that some of us hold even now. Now, if it's a view that you hold now, please know I'm not trying to rush, run roughshod over that. Uh, I don't want to do that at all because I held that view once upon a time too. Uh, when, I, when I was first studying for the ministry, I was reading a lot of Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon was one of my heroes. And uh, he was a great Baptist preacher. And, uh, you know, I, I really started, I, I really embraced this idea of baptism. I want, you know, Charles Spurgeon's my hero, and Charles Spurgeon preaches this, and therefore I'm going to teach this. And, and um, uh, what, 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 exactly, uh, what exactly does this teach? Let me, let me go over this quote for a moment. What this is teaching is that Christian baptism itself is an act of obedience and that it symbolizes. What does it symbolize? It symbolizes the believer's faith. You follow me there? It's a testimony to his or her faith. So it's an act of obedience, symbolic of the believer's faith, testimony to the believer's faith. So in other words, baptism is an act of obedience on the part of the sinner, which symbolizes and bears testimony to his or her faith. Now, what, why would I quibble with that? Why would we quibble with that? Let me, let me give you a, a, just a leaf out of my own uh, walk in this. I can remember as I embraced this idea of what baptism is, namely that it's symbolic of the believer's faith. I can remember back when we had our music store. We would hear stories from time to time. You know, such and such came to faith. And, you know, we'd be like, really? Yeah, they were just bad. They were baptized the other day. And, uh, yeah, well, we would be really excited about that, excited to hear about that. And six months later, we would just, you know, I'm just now getting used to the fact that such and such is in the faith, and I'm, I'm at the counter of the music store. Well, you heard about, I'll just make up a name. You heard about Ernie. He gave his life to the Lord. He was baptized. And and, and then some of my skeptic friends would say, oh, about Ernie, uh, we seen him in Scotty's place last night, slumped over a bar stool. And I'd be like, what? If you're in the church for any length of time, it's just a matter of time before this happens, isn't it? There's, there's no way around it. We could have six adults here Six candidates for the ministry, or six candidates rather for baptism. We could have them lined up and we'd be baptizing them this morning. But there is no session out there, nor is there any pastor out there, nor is there any congregation out there that can infallibly say that these six individuals are in a state of, a state of grace, that they're truly saved. We just don't know. So it's a problem that we all have, everybody in the church. Now, what does that do if baptism is symbolic of a faith response? What does this do to baptism when we find that the faith response is spurious? That was a big question that I had. I'm like, well, you know, it's, it, it, it must be a sign then of a probable faith. Uh, it must be a sign of a possible faith. But can it be a sign of real Faith. Is that what it is? I'll give you another story, too. When I was doing ministry, I was doing a lot of ministry at Columbiana County Jail years ago. I don't think that we would encounter this today as much as it would have been encountered 15 years ago. But um, as the inmates began to get to know me a little bit, some of them would come and they would talk and they would open up. And um, 
I remember hearing this over and over and over again, where they'd say, listen, I got saved three or four times, and I don't know what happened. It just must not have took. Almost like it's a vaccine. And I, I would say, well, man, you explain that to me? The first couple times I needed that to be explained. And they said, well, I was at a meeting, and you know, the pastor at the end of his sermon gave an invitation, and I went forward, and I said a prayer with him, and then I was baptized. Then I went back out, and I was a knucklehead again, and I just did the same old stuff again. And then, you know, later in my life, a few years later, I went back, and at a meeting, I, you know, I, I just felt I just needed to go forward. I went forward. I said a prayer. I was baptized again. Then I went back, and this same process happened three, four times. Okay, what do we say? What, what, do, we, what do we say to someone who comes to us and says that? I want to return to that here in a few minutes because there's something very powerful we can say to the individual who would say something like that. But we have to have the right doctrine of baptism in order to say that. Now, in your bulletin, you'll see the position that, uh, that at least I'm going to present here to you. If you look in your bulletin, you'll find from the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 165, which asks, and I think it's on our bulletin insert, isn't it, Donald? It's on the... I'd ask Donald to put it in the bulletin for us. What is baptism? Now, you, if you're holding a Baptist view, you're going to see a lot of things that are familiar here to you. Baptism, answer, is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's all, you know, when, when back in the day when I was talking to my Baptist friends at the, at the, at the seminary, I mean, we all agreed Jesus ordained Water baptism in Matthew 28, right? Go, therefore, uh, to all of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have the baptismal formula. We have the, the institution by Christ of water baptism. Continuing in the, in the larger catechism, it's to be a sign and seal, not of the believer's faith response. Okay? It's to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood, and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, and whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Now, there's a lot there. That's a dense statement. But let me just say, for the purpose of this morning's discussion, that the, the, the catechism, is the, the view here is not that baptism is about the believer's faith response. Baptism is about the gospel promise. In other words, the sacraments are the gospel made visible to the eyes and to the senses. Okay? Now, let, let, me, let me explain that. Um, there's three things that are important to understanding Scripture. And we say it all the time. It's context, context, and context, right? Okay, the sacraments have a context. They have a context. Sometimes when I talk about this, folks are surprised when I say, well, the, the, the sacraments have a context. In other words, the sacraments don't come to us out of thin air. They have a context. 
And in fact, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and the sacraments of baptism have an Old Testament context. And I would even add to that, they have a covenantal context. Now, when you add the word covenant in there, that's a point where a lot of people are like, covenant, you know, they've never heard about the covenant. They haven't heard about covenants. And, you know, it's a lot if you've never heard about covenants. And sometimes people say, well, Rick, you know, um, you're just one of those covenant guys and you're just always on about the covenant. You know, you're just, everything's about a covenant for you. Covenant, covenant, covenant. Um, you know, that might be maybe, but I don't know if you realize this or not, but in the English Standard Version, do you know how many times covenant comes up? Do you know how many verses have covenant written in it? Anybody? 295 times. 295 times. That's how often the covenant is coming up. Covenants, the word covenant that is, comes up in the English Standard Translation. That wouldn't count all the many other references that are two covenants that don't contain the word covenant in them. So my point is that the covenants, yeah, I'm always thinking about the covenants. Why? Because God never deals with us apart from a covenant. He always deals with us covenantally, and the covenants are all through the Scriptures, all over the place. Now, baptism and the Lord's Supper have a context, and they have a covenantal context. What is the context of the Lord's Supper? I think probably most of us know, right? It's the Passover of the Old Testament, correct? When uh, Israel is delivered from Egypt, when the, um, uh, the tenth and final plague is pronounced upon Egypt, the Lord says to his people, he says, listen, slaughter a lamb, take the blood of that lamb, paint it on the doorpost and the lentil. So the head of the household, and keep in mind this word household, this is important. The head of the household did what? Slaughtered the lamb, took the blood. He painted it on the, on the lentil and on the doorpost, right? Now, this is what the Lord promised. He, he promised that when the angel destruction came into Egypt, if he saw the blood that was on the lintel and on the doorpost, he would pass over the house, right? Everyone inside. So the idea of the head of the household putting the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, okay, was an act of faith on part, the head of the household and the angel of destruction passed over, thus the name Passover. Now, uh, the Lord instituted that as a sacrament. That was to be done at a prescribed point uh, in time. Uh, every year they were to do this. And uh, uh, the people of God were more or less uh, faithful in that at different times. Uh, but the whole idea of having a lamb, a paschal lamb, if you will, um, a sacrificial lamb, uh, was deeply embedded in the hearts uh, of, of the covenant people. Um, and what does that ultimately point to? John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who comes away to take this, who's come to take away the sins of the world. All of those paschal lambs point to Jesus. Now, uh, the other uh, baptism uh, doesn't appear out of thin air either. The, the, the uh, context of baptism is circumcision. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, uh, uh, the Lord calls Abraham to circumcise his entire what? Household. 
Um, all males eight days and older, he is to circumcise. And what did circumcision stand for? Well, it stood for one, entrance into the covenant. And interestingly enough, if a sojourner or a foreigner wanted to partake in the Passover, what did he have to do before he could partake in the Passover? He had to enter into the covenant. He had to be circumcised. So you see, there's the covenantal structure there. Uh, if you're hearing this all for the first time, you're probably going to go, bibi bibi um, if you're somewhat familiar with this, this might be new and you might be thinking, oh. but, but circumcision points. Okay, circumcision brings people into the covenant. What else does it stand for? Well, it stood for regeneration. The prophets um, would speak of the Lord circumcising the hearts. Um, so the, there's an idea of regeneration involved in circumcision. Also, repentance, where God would call Israel to circumcise your heart. What is that? That's repentance. Okay, so you have this doctrine, you have this uh, idea of circumcision. Now, how does circumcision connect to uh, baptism? It connects at the cross. It connects at the cross. How is the connection made? Listen to this really carefully. Circumcision stood for the putting off of sin. By cutting the foreskin off, you are putting off sin. What has Jesus come to do? In other words, where is all this sin going that's being cut off? Is God just forgetting about it? His justice will not let him do that. It will not let him do that. Where is that sin going? That sin is going to go to Christ. Think about that. All of these circumcisions. And by the way, it's covenantal. Abraham, you, all the fellows, eight days and older, you'll be circumcised. Does that mean they're all saved? No, we know. In the case of Esau, we've just been studying. What's Esau do? He runs off. He runs away. And in his running away, he's cut off from the covenant, isn't he? Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean they're in a state of grace. But it means they've been called into covenant. Now, for all of those who are really truly saved, those who are really truly in, in saving faith, where does all that sin go? It goes to the cross. Namely, it goes to Jesus. And Jesus goes to the cross. And that really wakes us up, I think, as to what our Lord bared for us. Bearing all of that sin. So the cross actually can be said to be the circumcision of Christ. When we look at the cross, we can see the circumcision of Christ, the putting off of all of that sin. And even in one sense, as Jesus takes that sin, what happens to Jesus? His fellowship with the Lord in one sense, if you will, is broken in a way that Jesus had never known. That's the most agonizing thing for Christ when it causes him just to say, oh, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because all that sin had to go somewhere. But baptism connects at the cross too. You're in Luke. Turn back to Luke chapter 12 and verse 50. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Here Jesus is speaking of his work at the cross. He's speaking of his crucifixion. And I want you to note what he says here. 
chapter 12, verse 50. Notice what he says. He says, I have a baptism. See that? I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. What is Jesus making reference to? He's making reference to the cross, the crucifixion, and he's referring to it as a baptism. And it, and it is at the cross where circumcision and baptism made each other. And now that Christ's blood has been shed, a sacrament, a bloody sacrament, is now no longer appropriate. So Jesus replaces it with baptism. Same symbolism. What does baptism symbolize? It symbolizes grafting into himself, just like circumcision, and grafting into the visible community. Okay, the visible community. In every church, it's a mixed community. There's those who are in the church, but not in the church, if you will. And there's those who are in the church and are truly in the church. We don't know the difference. We can't tell the difference. But circumcision brought people into the visible covenant community, just like baptism brings us in. What else does baptism stand for? The washing away of sin. Stands for the washing away of sin. What else does it stand for? Regeneration, the inward work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating the heart, just like circumcision. You go right down the list and you'll find that baptism symbolizes all the same things as circumcision. Same things all the way down the list. Now, let's take a look at our passage here. You're probably wondering, is he ever going to get to Luke 18? Well, let's, let's take a look at Luke 18 for a moment. If you look at verse 15, notice what's going on here. They're bringing even infants to him that Jesus might touch them. Now, I think we can see that in our mind. And now the disciples see it, and they rebuke them. Okay? In other words, don't bother Jesus with all these infants. Now, what's Jesus say? He calls them to himself and says, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, the main thread that's running through this passage, remember, there's three things important when we're studying a passage of Scripture. What are they? Context, context, and context. You see the kingdom of God here? That's a thread that actually begins, at, if you look back to chapter 17, um, in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. You see that? How can it be that the kingdom of God is in the midst of them? The kingdom of God is in the midst of them because the king is standing before them. That's why. And everything else is falling under that. The parable of the persistent widow in, in chapter 18, verse 1 and following. What is that all about? Well, you know the story of a judge and this woman comes and she's pleading justice. The judge doesn't really care about justice. The judge doesn't really care about men. He doesn't care about God. But this woman, she keeps bugging him and bugging him and bugging him. So finally he gives her justice. And Jesus is using this parable, if you will, to teach us to constantly pray. Pray without ceasing. Keep going to the Lord without ceasing. What, what initially do you suppose we're to be praying for? And given this context, the coming of the kingdom. 
It's usually the last thing we think of when we look at this. We have something on our heart. We look at this passage. We think, okay, I got this something on my heart, so I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep praying until I get what's on my heart. And there is an application for that, fair enough. But just as long as we understand the, 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 the overall thrust here is prayer for the kingdom of God. And really, how often, let's just ask ourselves, right, now, how often do we pray for the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God? How often do we pray for the consecration of the kingdom of God? Have we prayed for it today? Have we prayed for it yesterday? Normally, it's, we're, we're a little slow on this one, aren't we? Now, then we come into this really popular story, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know that one. You know, two men go into the temple to pray, and then one guy says, well, Lord, I thank you that you haven't made me like that other guy. I'm not like that other guy. Look at him. No, not me. No, I'm in, I'm in church every Sunday. And I tithe all that I get. And I'm always out doing wonderful things. But this other guy, he's a tax collector. He doesn't... Look at this other guy. Thank you, I'm not like him. And what's Jesus say about the other guy? Well, what's the other guy doing? The other guy's just... He's just pouring his heart out. Um, he's humbling himself before the Lord. We're told that he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. See the word justify? See that word justify? He went down to his house justified rather than the other. How was it that this man became justified by faith? He recognized by faith that he was a sinner and a criminal before God and recognized that the only way that he could be saved is by God's mercy, through faith alone. But what is this story about? This story is about the kingdom of God. Who shall enter the kingdom of God? Not the Pharisee, the one who thinks he's perfect, or thinks she's perfect, but the one who is contrite and humble of heart, who receives God in faith. And then there's the story of the, the, the children. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them and said, Listen, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now these are infants. Grateful. Greek word. Infants. How do infants come to the Lord? Do they take the bus? Do they take the beamer? Their parents bring them. That's how they come. Donald and I bring tears to my eyes. Donald and I just got done praying and thanking the Lord for Cody and Laura. Amen? What are they doing? Linus isn't old enough to take the bus. He's not old enough to take the train. But don't hinder Linus. That's why we baptize infants of believing parents. If Cody and Laura, we didn't believe they were believing parents, we wouldn't be doing that. What we'd be doing instead is we'd be doing everything we could to present the gospel to Cody and Laura so that after having received the gospel, they could present the gospel to their household. You see, you see that idea of household? 
This household dynamic is lost to us because we don't think in terms of households anymore. We think in terms of me, myself, and I. And our language even is so indicative of this. Our language has lost the ability. It's lost the ability to distinguish between a you singular and a you plural. And oftentimes when we read the New Testament, we're reading you plurals, but we think we're reading you singulars. singulars. Because we think in such terms of singularity, of me, myself, and I. But that's foreign to the Bible. That's foreign. Believers, believing parents, we baptize infants of believing parents who bring their children to us. Why? Not because we believe, if I believed that baptism was a symbol of Linus' faith, and it was a testimony to his faith response. I couldn't baptize him this morning, you see. I wouldn't be able to do it. But I can baptize him this morning because I don't believe that baptism symbolizes the believer's faith response. In fact, I even find that man-centered, actually. Should we take this doctrine and center it on what we do, namely our faith response? Or should we look at this doctrine based on what Christ does? And I, I would just, I, I would challenge you that when you're given the decision between basing doctrines on what you do versus basing doctrines on what Christ does, it's usually better to say Jesus. It's like being in Sunday school class and you, they ask you the question, you don't really know the answer, so you just say Jesus, and a lot of times it's right. That's how I first came to covenantal baptism because I, I didn't really understand all this, but I thought I'd better say Jesus. Say Jesus. You see, this isn't symbolic of a believer's profession of faith. The profession of, in terms of adults, I wouldn't baptize an adult who wasn't professing faith. In fact, I'd work very carefully with them to be sure that they understood the gospel. I wouldn't baptize them. But even then, I can baptize somebody and six months later they can be over wherever, slumped over a barstool. I don't know what they're going to do in the future. I don't know if their faith is real. I'm not, quite frankly, not going to form an inquisition and, and, and examine people that closely. But they're not going to invalidate baptism if they spurn. Let me go back to the, let me go back to the inmates. When those inmates called and say, hey, would you come out and talk to us? And when I went out, and when those inf- listen, if those inmates were to say to you, man, I've been ba- I don't know what's happened to me. I've been saved three or four times, and it hadn't taken. What would you say to them? What would you say to them? I'll tell you what we can say to them. We can say this to them. No, if you're saved, you're only saved once. And if you were baptized... You were baptized into the name, and this is what I ask. Were you, tell me about your baptism. Were you baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? If the answer is yes, you're married, my friend. You're married. You have made a covenant with the Lord in the name of the triune God. You have a ring on your finger. You see this ring? This means I am married to this beautiful woman right here. In the front row. It means I am not available to anyone else but her. And when we have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we are married. 
That's why the catechism, if you look at the catechism, notice what it says. It says you enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and the Lord's. Here's what I say to the inmate who asks me. I've been saved three or four times. I say to him, if you've been saved, you've only been saved once. But one thing I can promise you, I don't know if you've ever been saved or not, but I can promise you, you got married. You got married to the Lord. And when you return to the world, even though you were married to the world, you were out there, or married to the Lord, you were out there in the world playing the field. Now, what happens to the sign of baptism when it's put that way? Oh, man, it becomes a powerful evangelistic tool in the hands of the Lord, which I submit to you is what it's supposed to be. It's not invalidated. No, it says, listen, you better return to the one you married or you are going to be cut off. And that's why the, the framers of the catechism would say, listen, if you read the larger catechism, as you continue reading, you're going to read about improving our baptism, about looking to our baptism, looking to it and improving. How do we improve our baptism? We improve our baptism. It's beyond this morning. I'm not going to get into all of it, but read it. And what is it? what it involves is continually drinking of what I'm saying. We belong to the Lord. Continually drinking of the fact that we belong to the Lord. Let me, let me offer you one other pastoral thing, because I think this becomes so pastorally helpful. When someone is, when you, when sometimes our faith varies, doesn't it? It's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Our faith varies. Now, what do we do when, our, when we're in a low point in our faith? What do we do when we're in a low point in our faith? If we think that our baptism is symbolic of our faith response, how does it help us? It may help us in the respect where we look back and we think of the wonderful experience that it all was, but how does it covenantally help us? It may have some help, but it's not going to have as much help as if you see it as the gospel promise. What is that gospel promise? It, it, the gospel promises that if you embrace Jesus in faith, it's a certain fact that you are clean. You are brought into covenant with him. You are holy His. He is holy yours. The covenant promise, I will be your God. You shall be my people. That becomes a really great tool in the hands of the minister and in the hands of the one who is struggling with their faith when we see it this way. And I would submit to you, that's, that's why the Lord gave it to us. He didn't give it to us to, 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 to just be something that we could validate or invalidate it depending on what we do. No, it's certain and it's the same thing as the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, what are we doing? What are we saying? What is happening? First of all, the Lord's table is communal. It's not just me and Jesus in the corner. We don't partake of communion singly, individually in our homes. We come together to do it. It's a household thing. God, is, God reveals himself, not as an individual. He reveals to himself as a father. He's one person, yes. Or he's one God, yes, three in person. He's a community, three person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. But he reveals himself to us as a father. A single man who's not married and has no children is a single man. He's not a father. But the Lord reveals himself as a father. Second person of the Trinity, son. Third person of the Trinity, Holy Spirit, all over the place. What am I trying to say? All over the place, the Lord is communal. 
Thinking in family terms, filial terms. When we come to the Lord's Supper, it's a community. Sometimes we refer to it as what? Communion. Amen. 